0: I have with me a guest today who has had an amazing career in law enforcement and a parallel career in the military, and uh, and his experiences are extraordinary. So I wanted to share him with you, Dan Jewis. Welcome to the show,
1: Betsy. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for everything that you and Dave do. You guys are are just so impactful. You're you're uh, you're game changers in the world of law enforcement. So thank you for having me.
0: This is going to be a great conversation. So you started in 1998 uh, with the Connecticut State Police, and uh, you became a trooper—that right. guy that everybody's afraid of to see on the <laughs> expressway—and uh, and then you uh, fairly quickly became an investigator. Um, and you were—you came to national attention uh, in 2012 during the Sandy Hook uh, mass shooting. And uh, and then uh, you and I got to know each other after that because we're fellow trainers. So let's talk a little bit about your career and some of the things you've been involved in.
1: Sure. Well, I I had a blessed career. Like you said, I was able to get into our major crime squad after uh, four years of of being what we call a road trooper. And I spent 12 years there and and just worked with some of the finest detectives and and personnel in, in law enforcement. And then my final seven years of my 23 years with the state police, I was an instructor at the academy. A lot of that involved continuing on with uh, active shooter training and stuff like that.
0: So uh, talk about your involvement uh, with the Sandy Hook shooting. It's Just one of the biggest mass casualty tragedies and crimes, frankly, in American history. And you were the lead investigator.
1: I was, and, and that really meant that they had to put somebody's name on it. You know, this was, it was uh, 26 different agencies that responded and assisted not only that day, but in the investigation afterwards, which it took us a full year to do the investigation for Sandy Hook. And so we just had a, uh, a, a very tight, we were fortunate. It was one of the best teams I've ever worked on, our team that, that worked on that Sandy Hook shooting. And, and more importantly, I think, the response the investigation afterwards
0: right and it, it that investigation was it, you know although of course the offender was uh known Correct. you had so many victims um and then you had so many family members you had politicians you had extraordinary international media presence um how do you begin to deal with that and do your job as an investigator?
1: Yeah, we uh, we certainly, when we initially got called out, and I, I know I share the feelings of most of uh, my my coworkers is, you know, 2012, we were told it was a school shooting. Our first thought is certainly not Sandy Hook. And then even when we told that it was, there were two victims, which most likely was when they were able to see that that the principal and the school psychologist were in the hallway it is as big as that would have been for us we you know that was something that we investigated we investigated homicides as tragic as it was and then once the number went to 26 and we knew that it involved first graders uh, we just knew we were in a place we had never been before and um you know many of us were were in shock but we were also robotic and that's where our training kicks in. And we started doing our investigations and following leads and that's what we're trained to do.
0: Right, and you had to be uh, very methodical, unemotional um, and incredibly thorough uh, while you have all this media chaos around you and you have of course parents and family members um, you know, who want answers, who want to see their, their kids, um, who want to see where they died um, or were injured. I mean, just so much. And, and I think, I don't know that Americans really understand the toll that that takes on the police officers and the other first responders involved? Because of rightfully so, we're thinking about the victims and their families and things like that. But this takes quite a toll on first responders, doesn't it?
1: It does. For personnel that are used to dealing with tragedy, this was just a whole different place. And like you said, we knew pretty early on that it was basically a documentation type case because somebody was not directly going to court because of this, which puts us in a different place. But we very quickly shifted our focus from from just solving a case or figuring out what happens to really figuring out what was going to be best for the victims, the victim's family, and, and even that community. And it still led us back to the same place, which is trying to understand exactly what happened, because there's a therapeutic need for them to actually have that. Some of the challenges that we had were the fact that In 2012, we didn't have surveillance video to just go look at. You know, First graders didn't take out cell phones and record things, nor did the shooter go into a a heavily populated area where there was a lot of survivors and witnesses. So we were absent video, we were absent eyewitness IDs mostly, and we were also absent a lot of that crime scene processing that we would normally use to recreate a scene because of the fact that hundreds of what I'll call first first responders went through that scene and because of it, it was so disturbed by the time we actually got to it that even that information had to be taken with a grain of salt. So, so there was a lot of obstacles uh, in front of us about trying to figure out what exactly happened. But the thing that kept us on point, and I look back on our command post photos and I, you know, we were doing stuff with butcher block, right? And, and we actually had a butcher block piece of paper up there that said, what would be best for the victims and the victim's families. And every action that we took and and even breaking with policy, we always went back and regardless of who was making the decision or what authority they had, we always put that first and foremost, what was best for the victims and the victim's families. And I think it really kept us on point as far as what was important in that case.
0: And I think that's something that is often lost now in this kind of anti-law enforcement atmosphere we often find ourselves in, is police officers really do care about their victims and their families, you know, in, in, in all cases, not just cases involving children, not just infamous cases, but you can't be a police officer without having a level of compassion, can you?
1: Absolutely, I agree.
0: So you took, you have taken what you learned from the Sandy Hook situation. And now that's one of the many things that you share with other law enforcement officers, isn't it?
1: It is. It's a significant shift in what we do. And I I use the analogy of that if, when you ask people if they had a magic wand, what is the one thing that they would change about Sandy Hook? And, you know, our first thought is probably to, uh, you know, have better tactics or to, you know, have locks on doors and everything. At the end of the day, though, if you have a magic wand, it's it's that nobody got hurt, much less killed. And so when we started doing our analysis, we looked at it and said, what could actually help save lives in these incidents? Because unfortunately, the data tells us they're not going away. And knowing now that it certainly happened in in our incident, but it happens in, on average, about 50% of these incidents where law enforcement has impact just by getting on scene, where they either cause the shooter to commit suicide or to flee or to barricade, which transitions our response, or to start shooting at us, which is obviously better than them shooting at first graders. So that great impact that we can have just by getting on scene quicker And then when we look at that, everybody owns a piece of it from obviously law enforcement and by law enforcement, I mean also a critical part of our team, which is dispatch, but also so do the 911 callers. So when we're doing school safety training, there's so much there that we can incorporate other than just some bullet comment that says call 911. We should teach those personnel who should be calling 911 and the best way to call 911 and what information we need. And when we do all that, everybody owns a piece of this response time, which gets us on scene quicker. That's a significant shift than where we are in law enforcement because we spend so much of our time and money in a critical area, but we, we forget that response. We spend a lot of our, st- our, our training on the tactical side, which is starting in the lobby, doing the hallway movements, room entries. And, and although that's very important, if the data tells us that over 50% of the time that doesn't even come into play, then maybe we should spend our time on some other things as well, which can also save lives. And, and that kind of gave us the direction to go into the training that we do.
0: And that's an outstanding point. And I, and I wanna drill down on that for just a minute um, because first of all, uh, first responding dispatchers, law enforcement dispatchers, Are an amazing part of our team, and we we call them the forgotten first responders because very often they don't get the recognition. They often they don't get the training um, when we're like, because like you said, when we're talking about school shootings as police officers, it's often all about tactics, and it's and and we we fail at the first contact level very often. Not fail at it, we but we don't train for it but also because we have a lot of um, civilians watching this. What do you wanna see? What do we wanna see law enforcement from someone on the scene of an active shooter or uh, you know a, a school shooting incident like Sandy Hook? What do you want those 911 callers to do in the immediate um, sure. response?
1: You know, these scenes are so significantly different than so many other calls that we would normally take. But the most important piece of information that they can give to us is where's the killer? And it may sound like it's so simple, but unfortunately you can, you can go into YouTube and find uh, a number of calls from people caught in these horrific situations. And they're trying to tell us why they got fired or the person's name or how many guns they have or, or how many people are injured. And although all that information is relatively important, The most important piece of information for us to stop the killing when we get on scene is where specifically is the killer, because these incidents are happening at large facilities and college campuses. So if all we do is just give a general location or an address when we get there and you think about how long it will take us to figure out where the killer is if we parked at one end of the mall when we could have actually just parked at the other end of the mall, because we had more specific information and the amount of seconds that that will shave. And that's where this concept of, of shaving seconds to save lives comes in because we know that Newtown officers that got there extremely quickly, but they were on scene when rifle shots were still going off when, when unfortunately victims lives were still being taken. And then he commits suicide before they ever enter the building. So a, a, a simple analysis of it just asks the question of, what if we just got him there a few seconds earlier? He most likely would have committed suicide earlier, which means we'd have less than 26 victims. It's such a simple concept, it's just extremely difficult to do in the middle of these things. So for your civilian uh, watchers out there, whether you're in a house of worship or a business, which is the most likely area, or you're just gonna go attend a concert in an open space, Knowing that calling 911 is not enough, it's the it's great first step, but when you get on that call, tell us specifically where their killer is. And by specifically, I don't mean the exact row they're in, but give us a more de- definitive location so that our first responders that actually might already be on scene can move to stop the threat because that's their top priority. All that other stuff, all that other information, is secondary. The first thing we need to do is stop the threat.
0: That's outstanding advice. And I hope everybody listening who is involved with their child school or maybe involved in their church security um, understands that that's absolutely what we need to do and to train for, not just as law enforcement, but as responsible citizens in, a, in an increasingly violent uh, world. Now. Absolutely. You have you have lots of other training classes that you do, and and sure. uh, you have had uh, several. Um, you get. Well, let me say this: you have some uh, fantastic um, thoughts about leadership, and I think that's something that we talk a lot about now in this country. How we need law enforcement leadership, but we often think that, you know, that's only the chief or the sheriff or, you know, the highest of executives. And, uh, and that's not really the only leaders, right? Leaders can be anybody. And that's something you train about.
1: In the Connecticut State Police, we actually taught leadership at the lowest level, as in we taught it, and whether you want to call it leadership or followership, the, the characteristics are the same. We all follow somebody. And we all lead it at a different time. So we taught it to our recruits in the academy. And as cops, we, we get trained on every piece of equipment that we carry on our tool belt. Every single one we get certified on. And yet we put well-intentioned people in charge of other well-intentioned people and we give them no tools on their leadership tool belt. And we expect them to be good at it. It's, it's, a, it's a broken system. And so starting leadership on the lowest level is absolutely a necessity for taking care of your people. They're the most uh, important asset that you have. We need to do training, because when we wing it, we miss the mark. You want to give, you want to slide somebody a gun and say, hey, go out there. Now I know we used to do that. You you can't do that anymore because they're going to use it incorrectly. Well, we can't put somebody in charge of people without training them, some very basic dynamic skill builders about human dynamics so that they can lead them properly.
0: Now, you, you know, you, we hear a lot about police reform, the police need to be reformed. And I think to most people, when they hear that, they think, well, the police need to be stopped, you know, somehow we're we're a danger to our community and stuff. You have a much different take on uh, that term police reform, don't you?
1: I do. I'm, I mentioned that I happened to be doing a FTO training in a a large city, and you know I came in as a former trooper, so there was already some some natural fun friction going on. But when I mentioned that word to a police reform and asked for their reaction, there was obviously a lot of pushback. And unfortunately, we have to create a culture in policing that we are constantly in a state of police reform because. Our job is so complex, we need to constantly be getting better. I like to use sports as an analogy, not because they relate to what we do, but because they put billions of dollars into it, into the science of it so that they can get better at winning games and and make more money. And we know that you couldn't take the best team from 1940 and have them compete with a college team today. Why? Because they're in a constant state of reform. So we as law enforcement, have to constantly be getting better. What is important with that is that although we should involve our politicians in the conversation, we should involve our our civilians in the conversation, we have to take initiative to do a lot of it ourselves so that we don't feel somebody else has to come in and take that away from us because we're not doing a good enough job and we need to do a better job.
0: We balance that with. Um, uh, let me first say with making sure our police officers um, also feel valued, that they feel, um, you know, that they don't. We see so many police officers now who are either leaving or going to smaller towns, or or we have police officers who have terrible mental health issues, whether it's addiction or. Um, even uh, suicide, we're, we're still seeing police suicides on the rise. How do we balance all that?
1: That is, it's, it's probably our greatest challenge today is, is not the tactics, it's this mental health th- dilemma, especially when we are in the sights of, of so many. We know that there's a, a media spin that for whatever reason has painted police officers in a bad light, and, and that's a shame. So that mental health aspect is another thing that we've pushed down to the lowest level. We had instructors that went to an MBSR, which is a mindfulness-based stress reduction course that was put on by a instructor at Yale University. And what she taught us was invaluable to help reduce and manage the stress that we're in. And for some of us, the greatest stress we're in is not just the scene itself, But it's how we're viewed, how our actions are viewed and analyzed afterwards. And so not only knowing the purpose, the true purpose of your profession, but having some of that physiological knowledge so that we can actually prepare ourselves ahead of time, manage ourselves in the middle of these incidents, and then continue to manage ourselves afterwards is absolutely a lifesaver. The military has learned a lot from it. They still have a lot, of very, a lot of work to do, but they're in a much better place. We as law enforcement have to understand that the days of sucking it up and carrying on or the days of thinking that that stuff is, is touchy-feely and doesn't have a place is absolutely wrong. There are so many different tools and different tools work for different people at different times but mental health is one of the biggest killers of law enforcement, usually at our own hands. So we have to learn how to take care of our people and that should start at the ground level in recruit training.
0: Right, and that's something, and I know you believe strongly in that, that that training at the academy level is a lot more than just, here's how to drive a car, here's how to shoot a gun, here's how to handcuff a guy, isn't it? It's just tandem out to setting a good base for that police officer to go, you know, not just graduate the academy, but to go on for the next 20 or 30 years being a a healthy, productive, well-skilled
1: cop. Correct. In law enforcement, we're so reactionary. And by the nature of our job, we have to, because for the majority of the calls, we have to wait for the call to come.
0: Dan, where can people find you?
1: Well, so I have uh, from the active shooter, active killer side, we have the RAC Academy, R-A-K, which stands for response to active killers, because we now know that guns are not the only weapons they use. So the rackacademy.com, they can find me there. And then the leadership team building stuff that I do is with my uh, coworker, Eric Murray, and we have a company called teamtrainingassociates.com. And you'll find our leadership and team building training there.
0: Dan, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Put the gun down. down! Put the gun down!
1: Last year.